You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Bible in hand, open it to the 28th chapter of Genesis, verse 1, all right? Genesis chapter 28. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. Now we're going to pray, and our ushers will be receiving our offerings. Susan Cook will be ministering to us in song. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would find us giving in a proper, scriptural, liberal, God-blessed fashion this evening. Father, it's one thing for us to say, well, you know, I, I'm for that, and I'm enjoying that. It's another thing to say, I realize that with privilege comes responsibility. And I'm entering into a responsibility as a part of this local representation of the body of Christ. And I give joyfully, and I praise God for the privilege. So, Lord, bless this offering and bless the ministry of your word to our lives. I pray in your precious name. Amen. While you're opening your Bible, let me just talk to you a little bit about some convictions that are on my heart. Several years ago... When I was pastoring in Tulsa, I became extremely concerned because families were being devastated. You know, it used to be that we could say, well, that's really a shame, but that's the way it is out there in the world, that secular world, but praise God, it doesn't happen in the church. But I began looking around and seeing a remarkable amount of erosion within the church some of the finest people, some of the most wonderful people I've ever known, people who served as leaders within the church, fell victim. Giants would fall on the field, and I would be absolutely shattered by it. It broke my heart. Brother Ralph will remember a time when, after reading that there had been in Tulsa County more divorces than marriages every month since 1968, I said, Brother Ralph, we're going to get together all of our senior staff members. Collectively, we had over 130 years of marriage counseling experience. And I said, we're going to find out what the secret is. We're going to find out what we can do as a church to help people build a solid testimony in their lives through their homes. Out of our study we begin to develop some deep-seated convictions. At first, they were just observations. We could just tell that when certain principles were violated, that it was going to breed into that family disintegration. And then as we continued to study on an informal basis, those convictions brought about by observation were simply confirmed by the Scripture. I began to see that the Bible was very clear 
that certain principles should be followed, certain issues should be settled, certain matters intact before the couple that was getting married could really have the blessing of God upon their union. Out of that came five basic principles, five statements. Couples sometimes would call us and they'd say, we want to get married. And I'd say, well, that's wonderful. When? Oh, how about tonight? Can we swing by? And I'd say, well, I, I have to tell you this. You see, and by the way, folks, this is also true at First Southern. You see, uh, we don't ever agree to perform a wedding just by talking to somebody on the telephone. We need to sit down and talk with you personally. And secondly, prior to performing a wedding, by and large, there's about a 90-day period, at least a three-month period, in which we want to meet with you and share with you what the Bible says about building a testimony through your marriage. Now, sometimes people are offended, and I'm sorry about that. But I don't think you would want a pastor who would say, well, I'm more, I'm more concerned about offending people than I am obeying God. Or a pastor would say, you know, I'm, I'm so afraid I'm going to offend people that I'm not going to tell people the truth. And so you might be interested in knowing that uh, early after my arrival here last November, it seems longer ago than that, but early on in the game, well, I gathered together all the ministers in our church who perform weddings, and I said, guys, this is what the Scripture says. And, of course, they knew that, and they had studied that as well. And I want you to know this, by the way, and let me just make this as a parenthetical statement. To come to any one of our staff members is the same as going to any other staff member. We all sing the same song. You know, sometimes somebody have an opinion, well, I'll go to this guy, and if he won't marry me, well, I'll go to somebody else. That's not true at First Southern because we all have nailed down certain principles not because we want them, but they're there because they are in the Word of God. And during these next several weeks, I'm going to be touching upon some of these principles, but I just want to alert you if you're thinking about getting married, and we have a beautiful, two beautiful places, as a matter of fact, here in this auditorium. We've already had a wedding, and then our chapel and conference and choir rehearsal room with that stained glass window. It holds, well, I guess you could probably put a thousand people in there if you had to, and beautiful place for marriage. I believe that it ought to be something really special when the family at First Southern says, God bless you, and we're praying for you and for your new family. And so during these next several weeks, I'm going to be touching upon these principles, and you'll hear them time and again as we study the Word of God together. Now, sometimes people have the the feeling, well, look, you're my pastor, or you're, you're on the staff there, and you're obligated to marry me because I want to get married, and you just got to do it. Well, frankly, folks, our business is not marrying people. Secondly, we don't come out and solicit people. We're not looking for people to marry. But if some couple comes to us and says, we want you to ask God to put his hand a blessing on our marriage, we're going to have to say, then your union needs to be the kind of union that God can bless. And there are certain issues that need to be settled in your life. I pray that you'll understand that to, to be married and, and to be a part of the counseling procedure here at First Southern would be something exciting, something special. By the way, you might be interested in knowing 
that in the hundreds of weddings which I've performed since the time that we put these principles into a place, as far as I know, only three of those marriages have ended in separation or divorce. And as far as I know, in all three instances, one of the members of that, of that marriage has come to me and said, well, Pastor, we knew the questions you were going to ask. We knew how to answer it. We, we didn't tell you the truth. We just lied. We knew how to answer it. And I said, well, I can't make you tell the truth. I just assume you're telling me the truth when you come. But in essence, they really suffered from the law of sowing and reaping. They reaped the same kind of problems which they sowed into their marriage from the very beginning. And so I can honestly say from experience that God honors these principles and he honors people who honor his principles. And so with the Bible open, let's take a look at what the Word of God says about when a person is even ready to get married. And this is not all that the Bible says about this issue, but I want to share several thoughts this evening that will be helpful to you. And it could be that you have children who are going to be married. It could be that as you look at your marriage, you say, you know, we didn't even think about that. No wonder we're having difficulties in our life right now. It could be that you're not married and you're not planning to be married, but you have friends who are and you want to pray for them and you want to encourage them. Well, then this will be helpful, I believe, to you. Now, I am taking this particular study from the passage of Scripture that deals with Jacob. Jacob was one of twin brothers. He was second born, but yet it was Jacob upon whom God put his blessing. Jacob was the supplanter. You remember it was Jacob who deprived, in one sense of the word, Esau of both his birthright and his blessing. Now, he did this in a rather unusual way. In fact, he really fulfilled his character as supplanter and there's some who perhaps would say, well, now, don't be hard on Jacob because, after all, it was God's plan to bless Jacob and to uh, continue that godly genealogy through Jacob, and that certainly is right, but it doesn't excuse Jacob and his motivations on certain occasions. Jacob, after he had taken both the birthright and blessing from his brother Esau, and Esau obviously shouldn't have had it. He was a carnal, unspiritual man. But after that happened, Jacob became keenly aware, and so did his parents, that his life was in danger because Esau was a ruthless individual. And so you remember that Jacob's mother and father called him to them, and they said, you need to leave. And we want to send you back home to our relatives among some other people who have a sense of integrity, although they perhaps don't walk as we do. We know them. And we want you to find a wife from among them. We certainly don't want you to find a wife here in this land of Canaan where these godless people who worship many strange gods and practice all kinds of sacrifices which are godless, we don't want you to find a wife from among these people. Jacob then began to run to that land where he would meet with his, ultimately, the man who would be his father-in-law. He went to Haran and Laban would be there. And there he would meet that beautiful, beautiful Rachel. And there he would be married, first of all, to her sister Leah, the firstborn. Now, on the way, Jacob had a special meeting with God. One of two very special meetings. You young people remember that it was that night that as Jacob lay sleeping on the ground, he had a vision and he saw a, a ladder stretched to heaven and angels ascending and descending. And he said, God was in this place, and I knew it not. 
And then he packed up the next morning and went on out to that land where he would meet the, uh, ultimately his brides. And by the way, may I say, there are many people who struggle with the fact that God would put his hand of blessing on somebody who had two wives and, and who practiced, you know, all kinds of things with the concubines of these wives. And you struggle with that and say, how could that happen? Let me remind you that, that God begin with men where they are to bring them where they ought to be. And although this was practiced, God never says, that's my plan. And by the way, let me remind you that although Leah, Jacob's first wife, was not his first choice, it was through her that brought God brought about his godly genealogy. And if you even look at the way that the tribes were camped around the uh, tabernacle there in the wilderness, you'll discover that preference went to Leah's children and not to Rachel's children, although it was Rachel over whom Jacob's heart flipped, you know, when he first saw her. And so Jacob went out there and he met Rachel there by the well. And sure enough, man, his heart just went pity fat. And he went to visit with Laban. Her father was welcomed into the home, fell in, fell in love with Rachel. And you remember that the marriage was arranged. And Laban said, well, if you'll work for me seven years, why, uh, you can have her. And so there was the agreement. And it wasn't very long before the marriage was going to take place. And Jacob suffered from the law of sowing and reaping. He woke up the morning after and realized that his father-in-law unwittingly had replaced Rachel the beautiful with Leah. And Jacob was incensed and he went to Laban again. And you remember that Laban said, well, you see, it was only proper. She was the firstborn and I couldn't let Rachel the secondborn be married first. If you'll work seven years, and the Bible says the seven years seemed unto him as but a day because he loved her, as a matter of fact. Now, Jacob had two wives, and from those two wives and from their handmaidens came the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, let me give you five principles, five issues that need to be settled in your life before you marry. And we see these in the life of Jacob. So with your Bible open, you might want to write these down in the margin there of the Scripture. First of all, let me say that you are ready to marry when and only when you have come, now listen, you have come to love and to appreciate the role of your parents in this major issue of your life. Let me say it again. You are ready to marry when and only when you have come to love your parents and to appreciate their role in this major issue, that is, in marriage. Now, a few moments ago, we read that Jacob was sent packing, looking for a wife by his mother and father. He was obedient to them. Now, there might have been all other kinds of motivations, but Jacob was obedient to his mother and father in this matter. Now, I have said you're only ready to marry when you love your parents and when you appreciate their role as far as marriage is concerned. Let me explain both of those. In the first place, I said you're only ready to marry when you love your parents. Into the seeds, into the, the conception of most marriages are sown the seeds of their disintegration. And one of the seeds of disintegration is the failure to love your 
parents and honor them as God says you should. Let me explain why that is so devastating. You see, many people want to get married to get out of the home. I can't wait to get away from my mother. I can't wait to get out of the home, from, away from my parents. I mean, they're so legalistic and they're so pious and hypocritical and they act so spiritual. And man, I, I want to get away from home as soon as I can get out from underneath that house. As soon as I can get away, I want to get married. Maybe some things have happened which have created some bitterness and some hard feelings between you and a parent. Now, why is it imperative to settle that if you want to have a happy marriage? Because, you see, you will become like what you think about. And hatred or bitterness towards someone is an intense focus upon their negative qualities. And so if you have not resolved that, and you are intensely focusing upon, let's say, your young lady, and you look at your mother, and you're constantly saying, I'll never be like her. I'll never be like her. By the way, it's interesting to notice, and dads who have problems with alcohol, let me just tell you, did you know that most young girls when they grow up say, I'll never marry an alcoholic, but for some reason they do. Now, isn't that strange? Because you see, with all of your problems, you still represent security to that child. And they look at the mother, and that girl says, I don't want to be like my mother. I don't like this about her, and she's critical, and she's this, and she's that, and she, you know, she bothers me. Or a, man, a young man will say, I don't want to be like my father. I don't like the work he does. I don't like the way he lives. I am not going to be like my father. The last thing in the world I want to do is be like my father. You know what will happen? You won't be married but a few weeks before your husband will put his hands on his hips and say, you're just like your mother. Or your wife will say, you're just like your father. And it will devastate you. As a matter of fact, that probably is the thing, one thing that could be said in many marriages that would absolutely destroy you. If you want to see the egg hit the fan, say, you're just like your mother or you're just like your father. I don't want to be like my father. That's why you are like your father. That's why you are like your mother because in spite of everything you want to do, you will become like what you focus your attention upon. And if you focus your attention upon your parents' negative qualities, if you don't love them, then you've got a problem. And by the way, let me just say this. It's really difficult. I understand that it is difficult in your home sometimes to appreciate your parents' role in your marriage. But as I've said, you're not ready to marry till you love them and till you appreciate their role in your marriage. As a matter of fact, if you come to one of us and you say, we want to get married, we will outline the counseling procedure, and one of the things we will say is it is required that your parents not just give in, not just condone, but actually encourage the marriage. And in order to ensure that, we sit down with the parents early on in the counseling situation, the parents on both sides, and say, we want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, and if you're not for it, we won't perform the marriage. And you may say, preacher, you wouldn't do that. On two occasions, I have refused to marry the daughter of deacons in the church where I have pastored. God vindicated both of those decisions. One couple ran off and got married and got a divorce. The other decided to postpone it because we had agreed they would if their parents weren't for it. They fell out of love. They're happily married to other people now. And when they see me, they say, Thank God, preacher, you didn't marry me to that guy. And so unless your parents encourage it, you've got a problem. Now, why, why is that? Because, you see, you're putting yourself and your partner in an awfully hard position. 
Here is your wife, for instance. She loves you and she loves your parents, but if you and your parents don't love each other, there's a problem. And sometimes people don't understand that you never encourage love to yourself by discouraging it to somebody else. And so it becomes a battle in the home. Do you love him more than you love us? We raised you. Why don't you come on home? If you've got a problem, you just come on home to daddy and to mama. And so you're not ready to marry until you love and appreciate the role of your parents in this major issue of life. Here's a second qualification for marriage. Y'all are going to have to listen real fast tonight because we're going to get out at an appropriate hour and I want you to listen carefully. You're ready to marry when you have firmly established your relationship with the Lord. On his way to meet uh, with Laban, you can read in chapter 28, verses 20 through 22 about Jacob's meeting with the Lord. He vowed about, vow, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Now, you're only ready to marry when you have settled the issue of where you stand with Jesus. As a matter of fact, we will in our church not perform weddings when one or the other of the marriage partners are not Christians. Now, I know that there's some of you out here saying, well, we were lost when we got married and I'm glad we're married or my partner was lost and it was through my, my witness that was instrumental in bringing that partner to the Lord. That's good. But I want to tell you something. That is the exception rather than the rule. You ought to thank God for it. You ought to thank God for it. It's the exception rather than the rule. As a matter of fact, one of the first questions we ask are, is, are you genuinely born again? And are you intending to attend and faithfully serve in the same church? And if the answer is, I'm not born again, or we're not going to the same church, then we don't perform the wedding. Now, why is it imperative to be born again? Because the whole, or rather the primary purpose of marriage is to show the world what it's like to be saved. All the way through the Bible, Jesus is called the groom, the church is called the bride. Now, I go over in Little Rock, Arkansas. There's a house there where I can eat the food and sleep in the beds and watch the TV. The folks over there love it. 25 years ago, they'd have thrown me out. Same people, call the police. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking they let me in and they love me being there because of my looks, aren't you? Or my brains, that's probably it. No, that's not why they let me there. They let me in that house because one day I stood at the marriage altar with their daughter and I said, I do to you, and she said, I do to me, and they said, welcome home, you creep. <laughs> Not because you're neat, but because you're married to someone we love. And the Bible says that Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride, and when you become Christian, you say, I do to Jesus, Jesus says, I do to you, and God the Father says, welcome home. Marriage is a divine institution. I got news for you. Man would never have been smart enough to think up marriage. Never, not in millions of years would man have ever thought about marriage. You say, how do you know that? Because the more man has anything to do to marriage, the more it becomes like animals cohabiting and the less godly it becomes. That's how I know. That's how I know. Marriage is a divine institution designed by God for the purpose of showing the world what salvation is all about. That beautiful bride, that handsome groom, those marriage vows are a picture of what happens when we become a Christian. And so you need to be saved. You can love somebody physically if you're not saved. That's erotic love. I was telling one of our Sunday school classes that this morning. That's erotic love. It's demanding. It's temporary. 
It leads to defrauding. You can love somebody soulishly. Well, that's demanding too, and it's temporary, and it emphasizes my rights. But you can't love somebody spiritually if you are dead in the spirit. And it's only agape love that instead of being demanding is giving. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. It's only agape love that instead of being temporary is permanent. Love, agape love never fails. And it's only agape love that instead of emphasizing rights, emphasizes responsibility. What is my responsibility in this matter? And so it is imperative that you come to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You need to settle these spiritual issues, and you need to mature. Now listen carefully. You need to mature in your faith to the point that you do things as a matter of character and principle. I think I mentioned some months ago that most people live at what we might call level one motivation. What's level one motivation? I do what I do because I either get rewarded or punished. I get slapped if I disobey, and I get candy if I don't, and that's the way they live. Most of the people live their whole life like that. Some people escape it and move to what we can call level two. That says, I do what I do because, well, I'm a member of that church, and other people are looking at me, and I want to have a good testimony. I want to live a life that's a good example. Some people escape level two and go on to level three, which is where you ought to be. And you're not ready to get married until you're at level three. What is level three? I do what I do as a matter of character. It doesn't make any difference whether it's painful or pleasurable. It doesn't make any difference whether there's punishment or reward. It doesn't make any difference whether anyone is watching or whether I am alone on the other side of the earth. I will do right as a matter of principle. And until you get to that point, you are not ready to get married. I will do right regardless. Because otherwise, you're just saying, well, I'll do right if it's convenient. I'll do right if I think there's something to gain. But if there's not, I'll do wrong. I mean, I'm in this for my own pleasure. I'm in this for what makes me feel good. And so you need to achieve maturity in your faith in regard to moral purity, in regard to the disciplines of the Christian life, in regard to the standards which you have for your mate. And by the way, young people, let me say this. Anybody you date ought to have the same character and standards as anybody you think you're going to marry. You say, why is that so? Because you will become like who you spend your time with. And you say, well, I don't really think I'm going to marry this person. You still need to hold up those standards. I've known of young ladies who say, well, I'm going to date this guy. He's not a Christian, but maybe I can lead him to Jesus. I want to tell you something. Why don't you try that before you date him? If you think you can have it, if he wants to date you badly enough, you know, just, just tell him, you know, I need to know Jesus. Just tell her, you need to know Jesus as your Savior before you date. That's to be settled. You ought to have the same ideals and standards for a person you date as you think you're going to have for the person you marry. A lot of guys want to live like the devil and marry an angel, and girls too. And it just doesn't work that way. All right, number three. You're ready to marry, when, and I'm not going to park here very long, but you're ready to marry when you're in fellowship with people who want to help you grow in the faith. That's one of the reasons we say to folks, are you really involved in a church? Not just coming, you know, occasionally so you can get married in the church, but are you really involved? Are you really serving Jesus? I think it's interesting that Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca sent Jacob away to get married among their own. He said, I don't want you to be here. I don't want you to be among these people who are godless and who will not encourage you. Now, please listen. In great measure, I know there are some perhaps exceptions that you can point out, 
but in great measure you will become like the people with whom you spend your time. If I wanted to know about you over the long haul, if I wanted to know something about your character, you know how I could tell about your character? I could tell about your character by watching your friends because you'll be like your friends. You'll be like the people with whom you spend time. You say, well, no, you know, I'm just, I'm just with them. You know, Jesus was with all these people. I want to tell you something. Jesus ministered to the down and out and to the gutter dwellers. He was called a friend of sinners and of gluttons and of wine-bibbers, but when Jesus spent sustained amounts of time, he was with his disciples. These people say, well, I want to go out here and identify with people, and if I identify with them, I can finally lead them to Jesus. That's the reason I go to rock concerts, and that's the reason I'm on drugs, preacher. That's the reason I listen to rock music. I want to identify with these people. I want to tell you something. I hope you don't feel that way if I'm drowning and if I've gone down twice. Don't come out and identify with me by going down again. That's not God's plan. God said to Israel, I want you to look different, walk different, talk different, smell different, eat different, be different, and you'll be so different and so blessed that the world will say, I want to be like that. I want to have that kind of blessing of God on my life. And so if I want to know about you, I will look at your friends. And you're ready to marry. When you finally have become mature enough to say, the people who are my friends and who have the input in my life ought to be people of fine spiritual character who want to help me grow. I pray for some of these young men and some of these young women. They enter into marriages and immediately they're thrown into friendships which absolutely bring them down. Frankly, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. Back when I was in junior high school, I went to dance. I hate to tell you this, but uh, it's the only dance I ever went to in my life. It's called, some of these people recognize this, these real old people, it's called a mixer. Yeah, that's right. After high school, we had a mixer. You say, well, preacher, you're sort of a, you're sort of a square anyway and a prude, and we knew that's probably true. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you why I only went to one. It wasn't because somebody crammed it down my throat and said, y'all only go, y'all never dance. It's because of this. I stood over the side and listened to guys talk about the girls on the dance floor. And I said, I will never bring a young lady I respect any place like this to be looked at and gawked at and talked about And since I'm not going to date anybody I don't respect, then I'll never come to a dance because nobody that I respect ought to be here being looked at and talked at like that. Just that simple. You ought to be mature enough to say, I'm going to spend my time with people who will help me to grow in the faith. Those are going to be my friends. All right, number four, quickly, let's look at it. You're ready to marry when you are willing to wait for the right person. Someone has said maturity is the ability to postpone pleasure. I like that. I don't mean postponing pleasure. I mean, I like that definition. That's a tough one. You see, the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people out there who are more anxious than to marry than they are to marry right. I mean, they will, in order to get married three months earlier or five months earlier or a year earlier, they'd be willing to marry the wrong person or to keep from embarrassing somebody. I've known of people, and isn't this interesting? I've known of people who've actually gotten married because they sent out the invitations. Now, some of y'all are laughing, but you know, you know, we, well, we've sent out the invitations. I've had a shower. Well, I mean, I don't mean a shower shower. Everybody ought to have that, but, uh, you know, I've, I've sent out the invitations. We've had a shower. How can we not get married? You know something? I got a, 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 
a message sent from a friend of mine down in Houston, Texas the other day. He said, Chris said to tell you that he and his wife are doing great and things are wonderful. He wanted to tell you he loved you and he's praying for you. Boy, you know what? That was so wonderful to hear that because let me tell you about Chris. He was engaged to be married. And on the eve of the wedding, when we were getting dressed to go to the rehearsal, Chris's fiance called me and said, I don't feel like this is God's will. What do I do? And I said, don't marry. I won't even show up. Don't marry. She said, but the invitations are, you know, and you know that something, the, the wonderful marriage that Chris has is not the marriage with that young lady. And all of that is forgotten and all the embarrassment of it's over. And he's got the right woman, you see, because a fiancé had the nerve to say, I am more interested in doing right than I am in doing what's convenient. And there are people who, they're so anxious to marry, man, they want to get out there and marry. They don't care whether they marry the right person. How do you know someone is the right person? Let me give you a couple of ways you can know. First of all, that person will bring out the best in you. Let me ask you about your relationship. Is it making things more tense in your home? Is it a constant subject of discussion between you and your parents or you and your boss, you and your employee, you and the people at school? Is it something you're constantly having to work through? That's not love. That's just something that's making your life miserable and you don't know the difference between that and love. You're walking around with a 55-gallon drum of air in your stomach and you say, well, you know, I'm always working on this relationship. That's not love. The person that God sends you will make you a better person. You'll get along with your folks better. You'll love Jesus more. You'll witness more. You'll worship more. I mean, God's person for you will bring out the best in you. Another way you can know that it's the right person is that that person has, now listen carefully, that person has become in large measure what they are going to be. You see, Jacob had had some meetings with the Lord God. And by the time he got down there to Haran and met with Laban, I mean, God had worked him over in large measure. Now, he wasn't all that he was going to be. There was going to be a mighty change in his life some years later on the way back when he met Jesus at the brook Jabbok. But Jacob, by and large, had to become the man he was going to be. Gals, let me tell you something. I believe that when somebody asks for your hand, he ought to have the capacity to provide for you and know where he's headed by God's grace in this world. Otherwise, you are marrying a pig in a poke. What he's saying is, marry me and support me while I mess around, try to figure out what I'm going to do. I don't think that's a very good arrangement. And by the way, that arrangement usually sticks. Ten years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, he's still messing around trying to figure out where he's really going to light, and you're sp still footing the bill for it. I believe that in large measure, the person that you marry ought to be vocationally focused, ought to be emotionally focused, ought to be spiritually focused. The course for their life in large measure ought to be set. And you ought to ask serious questions about that. People come to me all the time. Well, what do you plan to do with your life? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to go to college and find out. Me and my wife are. That doesn't sound very good, does it? I'd say, look, why don't you find out what you're going to be and who you're going to be? What if he decides to become a riverboat gambler? 
You say, well, oh, that would never happen. Happens all the time, and wives chafe constantly. I don't like my, where my husband works, don't like what he's doing, don't like the company he keeps, don't like the compromise, don't like to see the breach of integrity, but he says he has to do it to make a living. He's got the job. We're married. The pressure's on. He's got to do something, and he's taking something that he doesn't want to do, but he has to because we're married. Why not just wait until he becomes focused? Wait for God's time. Wait for God's time. And by the way, I think it's interesting that old Jacob, he loved, he loved Rachel. He wasn't really all that crazy about Leah, but he loved Rachel. And isn't that an interesting statement there? He says, and the seven years seemed unto him as but a day because he loved her. Why not wait for God's person? One final statement. You're ready to marry when you're convinced that the law of the harvest works in your life too. What is the law of the harvest? says it all right over in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Be not deceived, God's not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And what that means is that you don't sow to the devil now and reap to God later on. But what you're doing right now, what you're sowing right now, is what you will reap in your marriage relationship later on. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life eternal. Jacob found that out. Jacob the supplanter, Jacob the trickster, Jacob the one who talked his brother out of the birthright and later stole the blessing, Jacob woke up the morning after and found out that what he had sown, he'd also reaped because over another tent was a gloating father-in-law who said, boy, I got him this time. He's married to my first daughter, Leah, and not to Rachel. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Until you're convinced of that, until you're convinced of that, you're not ready to get married because you'll think, men, that on a business trip you can do something. And you'll think, ladies, that down someplace else you can do something or think something. Or young ladies, young men, you'll think that while you're at college you can live a certain way. You'll think that you can get by with it. You'll think that your mom and dad are fooled. And you'll think that the folks at your church are fooled. As long as you think that and that there will be no consequences, you're not ready to get married. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And until you become convinced of that, you're not ready to get married. You're not ready to get married. Well, when are you ready to get married? Well, you're ready to get married when you love and appreciate your parents. You're ready to get married when you've settled those big spiritual issues. You're ready to get married when you've chosen the right kind of friends. You're ready to get married when you're willing to wait for the right person. And you're ready to get married when you realize that God's principles, like the law of the harvest, are just as true for you as they are for anybody else in the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Thank you for letting us meet like this. Father, thank you for putting it so clearly to us in your scripture by Jacob's example that there are certain issues that need to be settled in our lives before we get married. Father, I want to pray for people who are thinking about getting married that they would determine that their marriage, even the way they're willing to wait and to do it right, and to keep themselves pure and holy even now. Lord, I want to praise you because I believe those marriages are going to be the foundation upon which you build for the future. And they'll have the testimonies that will breed holiness into their children and from generation to generation. 
Father, there are perhaps people here who need to go home and say to a husband or wife, we violated those principles. We need to get on our knees and ask God to forgive us and start anew, make confession to God and ask God by his grace to cleanse us. Start anew with this fresh commitment to God. Oh, Father, use your word to touch our lives. I pray in Jesus' precious and wonderful and saving name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, the counselors are here at the front, and I'm so grateful that invitation time is important enough that no one's slipping out, no one moving around. I praise God for that. It says something about your priorities. Already people are beginning to come to the altar. I want to ask you if you want to come to the altar and say yes to that which God has spoken to your heart. You perhaps already know what it is that the Lord said to you. Maybe you need to reach over and take the hand of your mate and say, you know, we violated some of those principles. But let's just dedicate our lives and our family to God. It could be that you need to gather up your children and come to the altar and say, Dear God, we see those as being important principles and, and we pray that you'll help us and help our children to live by those principles. This is your personal invitation to say yes to the Lord Jesus, to say yes to the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage you to come, whoever you are, Wherever your seat is, folks are already coming. If you know what it is God's spoken to you as a single person, as an individual, or as a family, just get up right along with some others, make your way forward, and come say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you as you come. What kind of decisions do people make? Well, all kinds. What's God put on your heart? It could be you don't have the confidence that the issue is settled between you and Jesus. It could be you'd have to say, sitting right where you are tonight, I don't have it settled in my life that Jesus Christ is in my heart as my Savior or as my Lord. And I need to settle that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John said, as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. Paul said, you know something? We've all sinned, and we've come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the invitation for you tonight, right here at the front, back there in the shadows on either side, the invitation is for you to come and say, I want to settle it once and for all that I have eternal life, that Jesus is in my heart as my Savior and as the Lord of my life. I want to settle that this evening. Won't you come and find a counselor? Some already have. And say something this simple, I want to become a Christian tonight. I want to become a Christian tonight. Perhaps you're here and you're a believer in Christ. You know Jesus dwells in your life, but you'd have to say, you know something? Since the day I was saved, I've never been baptized. Since the day I knew that Jesus came into my heart and saved me once and for all, I've never followed my Lord's command to be baptized. You say, is that important? If the Lordship of Jesus is important to you, it ought to be important because Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say unto you? One of the things he says for believers is that you ought to openly confess him through the symbol of baptism. It's not a way to get saved, but it is definitely a way to show people that you are saved. And I want to encourage you to come tonight and say quite simply, look, I'm a believer in Christ. Maybe you were baptized before you're saved. Maybe you didn't even know what was going on. Maybe you've never been baptized, but now you're saved and you want to follow the Lord's command, will you just come on tonight? Perhaps you're here, you're not a member of this church. Maybe you're here as a single person. Maybe you're here as a family, and God's just spoken to your heart and said, you know something, this is where you belong. You need to pour out your life in service right here through this local congregation. Well, I want to encourage you to come. Others are coming.
You just join them right now. You just come and find one of these counselors and say, look, I want to come. We want to come and serve Jesus right here in this church. I can't think of a better time to make that decision than this evening, right now. You say, look, we want to become a part of this church family. Maybe you're visiting here tonight. Maybe this is the very first time you've ever visited. Maybe you've been here many times, but God's spoken to your heart. Well, you ought to come on tonight and say, look, I want to be a part. We want to be a part of this church. It could be there's some other decision. People are kneeling all across the front here at the altar. It could be you need to slip out from where you are and come settle some issue with God. Maybe God's calling you in some specific fashion. I want to encourage you to come, whoever you are, wherever you are seated. This is your invitation to say yes to Jesus. Brother Gary's going to lead us as we sing, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. You mold me and make me after thy will. I'm waiting, yielded and still. Would you determine that when we stand, you'll just simply, as a part of standing, make your way forward, find one of these counselors, settle as, as many have already this evening, say yes to Christ. Won't you come right now? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let's stand. Brother Gary, begin singing. As folks are coming, you just join them. Tonight, Lord, you have your way in my life. You have your way in my life. And as people are coming, you just join them.